0: So we are continuing in a uh, series where we are walking through the last week of Jesus' life. And um, this week uh, is just going to require a little bit of of more uh, heady or academic work uh, to get into uh, the scenario uh, and to parse apart, I think, some nuances to how we read the text, sometimes how we get lost, uh, probably in the meaning of what Jesus might be after. And so for me to set this up, I want to take a step back in time a little bit. And a time period that uh, we, particularly sort of in the Protestant-style church, uh, just don't spend much time understanding. Sometimes uh, we should probably find it weird that we end the Old Testament, and Persia's in charge still. They're kind of rebuilding Jerusalem, and then things just end. And then suddenly we pick up, and the Romans are in power, and there's a whole bunch of little groups within Israel. And often, the time periods between those two, we don't spend a lot of time. time in the church trying to understand how how did we get here. And so when we get introduced to groups like the Pharisees or the Sadducees or or why is Hellenism, why is Greek culture so prevalent and why are the Romans in charge, um, all these sort of things matter, especially as we get into particularly this last week, because Jesus will interact with these different groups at different times for different reasons. So let's take a little bit of a trek back A little bit uh, looking at the time where Israel was just returning to Jerusalem and Israel, Uh, they had been uh, out in captivity for uh, about a a hundred years, and um, now is starting to rebuild their cities, rebuild uh, their country. And so, there's um, some nuance of how these groups or how these people will respond uh, as they start returning. And so one of the questions that became common, it seemed like, during the time when they were in exile is, how did we get here? Why are we, why why is Babylon in charge? How, How did our country get destroyed? Why did our temple get destroyed? And there's various answers that they came up with, but one of those was really around the question of, of not knowing God enough, wanting to know his word, wanting to know um, about what he really um, might get angry at, which includes foreign gods, wanting to know um, ultimately who God is, His word of God, and, and the desire to be obedient to that. Seeking not to practice all the things that ultimately ended up, that caused them to end up in a foreign land. So that there was a group that certainly had this desire and when the temple got destroyed, and, and now it's being rebuilt, um, it, it also gave rise to what's called the synagogues. So at some point, they have no temple, they have no central form of worship, and they wanted to figure out God's word and how to be obedient, and so uh, there became a rise of synagogues uh, within the Israelites. And so they would have these central places of teaching, central places of learning the word all throughout their, their people. And so people would come meet. There would be a reading of the word. They would sing. There would be a teacher, usually, of some sort, um, maybe a rabbi, maybe a Pharisee, that would teach. And so this just sounds familiar. And whenever I hear statements where it's like, well, the church in the West is just using practical things of teaching and, and the music and stuff like that, uh, that sucker's been around for about 2,500 years. So um, it is an old school style of how to um, engage the, the, the faithful community. So This is starting to happen all throughout the Jewish population, both in Jerusalem and without. Now, if we also know our history, eventually the Persians uh, get overrun by the Greeks. Alexander the Great comes along, um, basically wipes out uh, much of the Persian army, uh, and takes over control over a large um, swath of area. And he he brings with him Hellenism, which is Greek culture. And a lot of Greek culture is about self. Uh, that's why one of the, the, the famous phrases is a, that man is the measure of all things. That humani- it becomes very humanity-focused, uh, very focused on uh, decadence and wealth and comfort, and all these sort of things, entertainment. And it made for an interesting question amongst the Jews. As Hellenism starts being in effect, they have to answer this question, which we always have to answer this question is, well, how much do we accommodate and how much do we go, no, how much do we say this, this Hellenism stuff is not okay, does not reflect what we're supposed to be? And so that became where we start getting into different groups, because there ends up being plenty within the family of the priesthood that seem more than happy to accommodate to the Greeks, as long as it involved them staying in power, staying in control, and allowing them to enjoy a lavish lifestyle. So there became, over time, a bit of a a Hellenized, a Greek culture amongst the priesthood. And there were battles between the Greeks and Jews over time, but eventually Rome will come along and conquer the Greeks as well. And in a move to sort of shore up negotiating and bargaining power, because uh, Rome is certainly more powerful even than the Greeks were, one of the priesthoods decides to marry off one of the daughters of the priest to this man named Herod, who had plenty of money, plenty of wealth, plenty of... of, um, power on that front. It's not a Jew, though. And so it brings us Herod the Great into the storyline, sort of a strange bedfellows between Herod and the priesthood. And there was a collection of these seven families of priests that um, were all working in cahoots to make this happen. And they were all descendants of um, a priest called Zadok. Uh, At one point, when they're rebuilding um, under David and Solomon, they choose these different families uh, of the priesthood, and Zadok wins, which becomes a which is really ultimately where we get Sadducee. Now, there were plenty of people who rejected all of this mess. All this in cahoots with the Greek culture, all this in cahoots with Herod, all the kind of stuff going on in the priesthood. There were people that rejected it. There were priests that rejected it, and they moved to the desert. They are uh, what we know really as the Essenes, the people who kept the Dead Sea Scrolls, as we know them. And a whole group of people that went north, up to the Galilee, uh, that we really know as the Pharisees and also the Zealots. The Pharisees, though, they were the group that said, look, we are in captivity because we were not following the Torah as we should. And so they were very dedicated to following the Torah. Uh, A little, a little, uh, went a little awry, but, but, but focused on obedience, wanted to resist the Greek way of life, strict adherence to the law. So this would be the Pharisees, experts, in Torah, experts in the law. They basically started the Harvard of Israel, but up in the Galilee. So this is all going on. These are all different groups that start settling in when we pick up our New Testament. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he interacts with these groups in different ways at different times. He actually has very little interaction with the Sadducees until Passion Week. Tons of interaction with the Pharisees for multiple years. So it's really important for us to know who he's dealing with and why, because he will inter- uh, interact with both groups uh, this during Passion Week. And statues could best be described as a priestly mafia at this point in history. Uh, they uh, they um, would wipe out their enemies with the royal guard that they had. Uh, they would have secret um, meetings late at night, which we certainly see in the Passion story, uh, where they would... Um, Break Torah all the time, in order to enact their power and influence onto the scene, Um, and so um, they—they were a mob or a mafia at the time. It's probably the best way to think about them. And the Pharisees, uh, we tend to have a decent idea about patterns of legalism, marginalizing outsiders, and the unclean adherence and uh, strict adherence and interpretation of the law. And so these are the groups. And as we look this week, Jesus is going to have a conversation with both of those groups or an interaction with both of those groups where we pick up today in Matthew 21. Uh, So if you want, you can turn there. We'll also have the scriptures on the screens. Um, We're picking up right off the triumphal entry. And it says, now Jesus had entered the temple, which makes sense. As we were left off, people were singing Psalm 118, this great psalm, Hosanna, blessed be the name, of the Lord who comes to saves us. And then ultimately the next line of that song is, and we will go up to the altar. So where are we going? To the temple. That's where Jesus goes straight to. And he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So now we have to remember that some of the stuff that involved exchanges in the temple was legit. At some point, you have Roman coins being... used throughout uh, Israel. And these Roman coins have the face of Caesar on them. And it says even on the back that Caesar is Lord. And so um, there was plenty of reason for them to have money exchanges and to say, look, we we can't bring these coins into the temple. That's okay. Uh, The priests were charged also with inspecting animals uh, to make sure that they were appropriate. So if it was spotless, it needed to be spotless. And so there was a lot of this stuff that existed um, for reasonable reasons. But with things like that, the systems can go awry pretty quickly. Like who sold the sacrifices in the temple? And we know who sold the sacrifices in the temple, the priests. And guess who had to inspect the sacrifices in the temple? The priest. And guess who had to determine the price of the sacrifices in the temple? The priest. And guess who had to determine the exchange rate in the temple? It was the priests. So it's quite a setup of corruption that can happen in a time like this. So it becomes a corrupt system run by this priestly mafia seeking to skim money from the hands of its own people. And what are people there to do? They're there to worship. They're coming for Passover week to worship, to make an atonement, to offer sacrifices to their God. This is why they would come. This is how they would learn more about who God is. This is how they would make things right with God. It was for people to worship God. And yet what was happening was all this corrupt foolishness that the priests were really behind at the time. Not only that, but Jesus then gives us a quote, quoting Jeremiah 7, who is also referencing Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 says in the quote, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples or all nations. And Jeremiah speaks to a condemning tone of the temple at the time. And he says, Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. And so Jesus is certainly picking up on this language. Mark even goes out of his way in his gospel to make sure to include the full Isaiah quote around the house of prayer for all nations. Now, this became part of the additional problem. Where the priesthood was set up all these exchanges, all these booths that were already um, uh, manipulating the people was a place called the court of the Gentiles. In the court of the Gentiles, as Gentiles, they were not allowed into the inner parts of the temple area, but they did have an area within the walls that they were allowed to worship in. If you were a Gentile that said, you know what, I do think Yahweh is all-powerful. I don't think I'm I'm part of the inheritance of Israel with the land and stuff like that, but I do think Yahweh's real. And they would come, they would worship, they would want to know more about Yahweh and what it meant uh, to to worship Yahweh. This is where they would know what Yahweh was like. Um, This is where they would see all that kind of stuff to to know more. And they come to this place where they have been instructed to go in order to worship and to understand Yahweh more. And what do they find? Is this, once again, foolishness. It's just happening in the temple area. All of this corruption from the very people who are most tasked with representing Yahweh. And so Jesus comes into this and he says, this is not okay. Flips over the tables. According to John's account, even breaks out a whip. So um, Jesus certainly shows up angry and frustrated by everything going on. And we hear that he heals some people in the process um, also. And then by verse 18, uh, he, he ends up leaving, uh, or verse 17, he ends up uh, leaving the temple. I'm, I'm using this because this is all sort of a setup. And leaving them, he went out of the city of Be- to, uh, to Bethany and lodged there. Uh, but then in the morning, as he returned to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come of it again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, on some level, you could feel like that seems a bit extreme. Like, why is he so mad at this fig tree that um, even according to um, other gospel writers, wasn't even supposed to be uh, uh, bearing fruit at this season? But obviously... um, if we understand sort of the context and what's going on in every other story happening in this part of the text, there's there's more layers to it. Because Jesus is not just seeing um, a, a tree, but is seeing a lack of fruit that he desires from this tree and ends up cursing it. Now, some have taken figuratively that, that it, this stands for Israel itself. I've heard that taught plenty of times. But Let me point out that despite what you may have been told, a a fig tree is never actually a symbol of Israel proper. Olive tree, pomegranate tree, the vine, like a grapevine, all become symbols of Israel, but a fig tree itself never is. And if anything, in the book of Proverbs, one of the times that that fig trees used in sort of a metaphorical state, it's used around leadership. It speaks of, um, of those who would protect their master, and the master gets equated with a fig tree. And, and it's actually the word where we get rabbi or teacher. And so at some point, it's, it's a case to be made that Jesus' ultimate sort of cursing of this tree is connected to his cursing of leadership. Jesus' condemnation of this fig tree is a condemnation of this leadership that's going on at the temple right now, that's taking, um, that, that is um, skimming on the top, that is corrupting, uh, that is only after money and wealth, that is keeping the Gentiles out. All this stuff is going on, the Sadducee corrupt mob leadership, who is in cahoots with Herod at the time and the political powers at the time. Which makes the next story that much more interesting too. Verse 20. when the uh, the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did this fig tree wither at once? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do uh, uh, what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown to the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive uh, it, if you have faith. Okay, so hopefully I've set you up a bit, because I think this little section gets Totally ripped out of context to use, like, well, just pray for mountains to move and you can move mountains. Just fine, but I don't think it's what's going on in the story. So, what is Jesus talking about with all this sort of stuff? And and as I said, if he, with this victory, I think he's condemning the leaders of Israel and particularly the Sadducees. So, why just sudden pivot around prayer and mountains and things like that? Well, there's a place really close to Jerusalem at this moment in history called the Herodium. Herod the Great, as we said, kind of married, was in cahoots with his priesthood uh, in power. And Herod the Great was rich and powerful, but also a bit of a, a loon. He was paranoid. That's why when he hears that there was a king born, basically tries to kill every child uh, that was born. He's super paranoid about a lot. And so he builds all sorts of little palaces, basically a day's journey apart, in case he ever needs to run away from an invading army. So he's, he's a little bit crazy. Now, what if I told you there was a place that was with the eye shot of where Jesus is teaching that looks like this? Let's see if we have a picture. There it is. This is called the Herodium. It's about eight miles from Israel uh, or from the Temple Mount. So if you're standing in the Temple Mount, you'd probably be able to see this because uh, there's no cars or anything. It's pretty clear days. Uh, and, um, and, and this was built. And so we still have ruins of it sitting around. Next couple pictures. So there's the, there's the hill and one more picture. Now, what if I told you that that mound didn't originally exist? Uh, We know from history and archaeology that Herod basically moved a mountain, uh, moved all this dirt through slavery to build this giant, what would be a mountain for Israel, because all things get called mountains that aren't exactly dramatically a mountain, Uh, but this very large hill uh, that he would build his castle upon. He literally moved a mountain to build his fortress. So I can argue, I would argue in this context at least, that I don't think the disciples are really interested in the botany lesson of how this uh, fig tree actually came to be withered. I, I, I would argue they're picking up on the metaphor that Jesus is throwing down, wondering, Jesus, you just condemned the Sadducees. You just pointed out that, 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 that this, there will be an end. There will be a withering to this. But how, how can this possibly happen? particularly as quickly as this? How, how is this going to happen? How's Herod? How's the priesthood? How's this whole corrupt system that is overseeing so much of Israel right now going to finally go? How is this possibly ever going to change? And I think Jesus' argument is, have you not been paying attention? How much faith did I say you needed? Like a, like a mustard seed? And don't tell me that a little bit of faith can't do more than what Herod's flesh accomplished in moving his mountain. Ask, pray. And God will bring justice. And I think that's ultimately what he's getting at in this text to sort of condemn this leadership. Now, I want to jump ahead a little bit. I want to highlight one other interaction that Jesus will have in this time period. This one we'll cover a little bit quicker, but Jesus will go and speak to the Pharisees as well while they're in town for the Passover in Matthew 23. So you only have to go ahead about a chapter. And in Matthew 23... Sorry. We get this interaction. It starts with this. Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees who sit in Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Now remember, as I said, the Pharisees were very interested in adherence to the law. And Jesus is affirming that. Jesus is saying, hey, what the Pharisees teach you to do, do those things. Like their teaching is not the problem here. But not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all the deeds to be seen by others. And he continues on from there. It's as if he doesn't like sort of how they lay on expectations and load up guilt and, and do all these things, yet don't help to relieve the people's burdens. He's, he's not a fan of how they sort of put their obedience as a show, desiring to be applauded and approved by others. He condemns that. And he will go on to pronounce multiple woes to these leaders. That they make it difficult. I'll just give you highlights. That they make it difficult for others to enter into the kingdom. That those who are following them have, been, um, have now... Um, Everything that they've put into, uh, into disciples, they've now multiplied all their brokenness that much more into their followers and disciples. They've navigated loopholes um, in oaths, which the Old Testament certainly takes very highly, um, and vows that, that people are violating just because they pledge to something more important. It's like, I, I vow by the temple. And it's like, well, now I need to vow to something else. Well, I vow by the gold of the temple, and it makes it that much more uh, of a loophole. Uh, they do great in their ties in the particularity of their ties, yet they neglect mercy and justice, things that Jesus will call the weightier parts of the law. There was a Jewish teaching also that talked about the cleaning uh, of a cup, and it said if you clean the inside of the cup, the outside will get cleaned as well, yet Jesus stands to them and says, look, you're, you're too busy cleaning the outside of the cup, and, you, and your inside of the cup is still dirty. It's as if he's pointing out their heart and brokenness. They're like whitewashed tombs, which would have been a metaphor that they would have really struggled with, since dead bodies is like the worst on the cleanliness chart. And they're continuing with some mentality. However, they're practicing a thing that got the prophets killed. Now, if you were really well versed in scripture, like the Pharisees might have been, you would immediately hear Jesus spouting out some woes at you, and it would take you back to the Old Testament pretty quick, uh, and particularly the book of Isaiah. Isaiah starts off, and Isaiah lays into this whole series of woes towards Israel. There was a particular greed amongst Israel, particularly the leadership of Israel, that ultimately it was dealing with. And here, Jesus is dealing with the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Now, we'll we'll get to the application stuff. I know it's a lot of setup today. Now, Jews were very into numerology. Numbers mattered. They had importance. And anybody notice the number of woes that, that might have um, been going on? Because I guarantee you, a Pharisee would pick up on this at the time. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah levels six woes against Israel, which is this number for sinful, sinful humanity, would, would represent sort of this incomplete idea. But here in the text, Jesus levels seven woes at the people. This number of completeness, totality, as if Jesus is saying, you have perfected the art of evil and sin. Jesus even caps off his teaching uh, here and, and he says to them, fill up, or more directly in the, in the Greek, complete then the measure of your fathers. I have this to say, like, look, they were bad with greed and stuff like that. You guys are the totality of sin in your self-righteousness. He's watched them take advantage of others. He's watched them keep others out, not acted with justice and mercy, and ultimately put on a show of holiness with their harsh words. As if to say, you know what's even worse than your greed? It is this. And it's a shot at this group. So on some level, the application on on these texts is really for me. It's a condemnation of leadership and a corrupt leadership. And so, um, absolutely, um, the the main practical application is to those in leadership uh, to, to know this. Jesus is at the defense of those who have been led astray. Gentiles, those who are under the corrupt money systems of the temple, those who are receiving heavy burdens and heavy yokes, who are not given mercy to help them process their sin and brokenness. And there's a particular judgment thrown out at the leadership by Jesus in this time. It's the same thing that James will ultimately speak to, where he speaks about leadership. And he says, now, now uh, many of you should become teachers, my brothers, For you know, uh, should not become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There's a heavier expectation that should be put upon leadership. But in this time, and particularly because not everyone in this room functions in a leadership role, uh, I want to talk about the other side of that too. Um, there's certainly a highlight over the last five, ten years uh, to, to bring to light uh, what is called spiritual abuse. And just this past week, there was a story highlighted of a pastor who publicly shamed this woman from the pulpit, who had temporarily separated from her abusive husband uh, because he was also abusing his, their kids. He would eventually end up in prison, serving 21 years to life, but yet um, at the time, the pastor shamed her publicly so that she would stay with the man. And I'll tell you what, stuff like this just tears me up. I hate it. I want to define at least the term if we're going to talk about spiritual abuse. Michael Kruger has a good definition. He says, when a spiritual leader, or any form of, of leadership, wields their position of spiritual authority in such a way that he or she manipulates, domineers, bullies and intimidate those under them as a means of accomplishing what he or she takes to be biblical and or spiritual goals. It could take many forms, such as using guilt and shame as a way to control. I think uh, a really good example of this is the purity movements of the late 90s and early 2000s that had reasonable spiritual goals. Hear me. Chastity and purity leading up to marriage is a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But with methods that are just sometimes awful, a heavy emphasis put on shame, particularly in the direction of young women. So much of the problem was pointed at them, their bodies, their clothing, in a way that didn't highlight the gospel and the purpose of the purity but instead manipulated young, young women with guilt and shame so that many women struggle with problems of self-image and a distorted view towards sexuality in the church. And it was, in some ways, abuse. It was abusive, largely shaped and molded by men who shifted the blame to young women for all their lust and struggles. And I'm not downplaying that there's not healthy, nuanced conversation here. But at the same time, there was a lot of that was done wrong. Uh, I think another way is claiming to speak on behalf of God. I think this becomes spiritual abuse, particularly in more charismatic settings, where there's a usage of, God told me to tell you. This was used by a lot of single guys uh, that really wanted uh, wives uh, a lot in those days. God told me to tell you, you and I are going to be married. Um, but God told me to tell you, you need to serve this way. You need to deal with this specific sin. I mean, who can argue? If God told you to do that, then that must be it. But once again, it's manipulation. It's a form of manipulation, slapping God's name on something that you may or may not be prompted by God at at all. I think there's ways the Bible gets used to justify abuse. There could be a lot of misuse or proof texting to try to defend a position Quickly pointing to texts about rebuking the sinner and things like that, which, hear me, there's, there's, there's perfectly good reasons to rebuke the sinner, but at the same time, not going to other texts on how to speak to brothers and sisters in Christ, just taking rebuke to mean, therefore I can be a jerk and ultimately deal you pretty hard emotional blows without understanding the full context. Sometimes spiritualizing uh, the shameless pursuit of money. Uh, so uh, this happens pr- primarily in um, prosperity gospel-oriented churches, but uh, there are ways to distort scripture and manipulate a congregation or congregants into giving more, into supporting more, into sacrificing more. I think there's ways that it's crushing someone with words that are meant uh, as attacks. When you talk to people who have been under abusive leadership, certain words that are come up, authoritarian, manipulative, controlling, mean, cruel, vindictive, defensive, unable to take criticism. And things usually don't start that way. Often this sort of abuse behavior will begin with a leader making sort of cruel jokes at someone else's expense, or maybe just being hypercritical of the staff that work under them or whatever it may be. But this, and it, this, um, then it can advance to more severe things. And so people who find themselves at odds with a spiritual abusive leader will often feel isolated, shamed, ostracized, silenced, made to feel like they are unsubmissive and insubordinate, one who undermines the church's God-given leadership. I think there's use of community to um, protect abusers and isolate victims. I think questions are often not allowed um, in abusive systems. Doubts are punished in various ways. There's a lot of it. Now hear me. Power is not the problem. It's abuse of power. Authority is not necessarily the problem. It's abuse of authority. There's ecclesiological systems. There's times where things get labeled as abuse that aren't actually abuse. They're just people confronting sin. I I get that. I I don't need the emails to say, well, not all of it. I understand. But there's also a lot of a system of broken leadership. And it's great to to point fingers and condemn. But at the same time, I I know the stories exist in this church of people who have walked through a lot of it. Stories similar that make famous Christianity Today podcast and things like that out of. Stories of sin. Stories of abusive leaders. Um, and, and I've watched too many walk away from the church because of spiritual abuse. Like, legitimate spiritual abuse. Um, I, and as I said, I know some of you have tragic stories. Stories like what I've mentioned, stories that would make Jesus flip tables and pronounce woes on leaders. And my hope, gosh, my hope is that we are a church where it feels like this might be a place of healing from some of that. A place where you see authority and power used Sorry. <clears throat> A place where you see it used to serve and not be served. A place where transparency and repentance and love are showcased from leadership. And for many of you. <sighs> Thanks, Bianca. Um, for many of you, healing may be a really slow process. Digging up memories and uh, trauma. I get it. But at some point, at some point, my hope is that Jesus can be light in those areas. So to that end, uh, I, I know I can be a face of leadership to you from the church. My hope is that we have been healthy and have loved you well, but at the same time, um, as I said, I I, I want to spend a moment repenting on behalf of church leadership everywhere, um, if I can, representative of leadership of God's church. So I want to move us, move me, particularly into a time of repentance, and I hope these words can be healing for some of you. So let's pray, God, for those that are in the care of leadership. Resonate. We repent. If any way we have abused the good and right description of leadership given to the church, and we ask for forgiveness. God, for those who have used shame as a tool for sanctification, gosh, God, we repent. For the ways this has specifically been leveraged against women, treating them primarily as objects and temptations rather than sisters in Christ with dignity and worth, we repent. God, for those who have been proof-texted, into certain situations and responses in ways that are not faithful to your word, in its context or its emphasis, we repent. God, for the way leadership in churches can often gaslight those who speak out against injustice or abuse and manipulation, we repent and seek to listen to take serious accusations instead of demeaning and defaming accusers and victims. God, for those who have been forced to stay in dangerous or in other forms of abusive relationships because of a lack of wisdom mixed with the use of ecclesial authority, we repent. God, for those who have been wrongly silenced by church leadership, we repent. God, for uh, a leader who has wielded their position in spiritual authority in such a way that he or she has manipulated, domineered, bullied, and intimidated those under them as a means of accomplishing what he or she takes as biblical and spiritual goals, God, we, we repent. It's God... May in this repentance from someone in leadership, may there begin healing for some. Or may this continue the process of healing for some. God, your your church is the pride. And we all make up it, but you love your bride tremendously, even in her brokenness. And so, God, I pray that there might be a deeper love and affection. in spite of sin and brokenness for those that might have been so tremendously hurt by the sins of leaders abusing power and authority I pray all see your name amen there's this moment of good news that's kind of thrown in during this whole discourse on leadership and Jesus goes and tells this parable about this wedding feast And how he sends someone out and they invited all sorts of different people of note and status and no one shows up. And then he sends the people back out to go invite more. He says, find anybody, good or bad, just invite them to the party. Fill up the seats. And they they fill it up and it's a tremendous celebration. And In the midst of just all the brokenness, all the hurt, all the poor leadership of Israel, Jesus just loves his people. And so desires from whatever walk of life people to enter the kingdom. And that's the good news. And he would go to the cross to ultimately deal with sin. To deal with sin of leadership that's going to repent. To deal with sin of, of tax collectors and prostitutes and everybody in between. And there's a party. There's a celebration. There's a banquet on the other side of that. And its centerpiece is Jesus, this lamb who had to be slain for the forgiveness of sins and by faith we get to celebrate in that weekly and when we take communion that ultimately there's forgiveness, ultimately brokenness gets dealt with ultimately justice will prevail in God's justice and that's good news that sins aren't glossed over, they're dealt with And ultimately we can celebrate because even our sins, no matter how deep God's love goes further,